Welcome to the Chemical Sensitivity Podcast. It's a podcast that amplifies the voices of people with MCS and highlights emerging research about the illness. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Shahir Masri. Dr. Masri is a member of the Hoffman Tilt Program at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. It's an organization that conducts critical research, education, and outreach about multiple chemical sensitivity and toxic-induced loss of tolerance, or TILT. Dr. Mastery is also an assistant specialist in air pollution exposure assessment and epidemiology at the University of California, Irvine. He teaches courses on environmental health and pollution at Chapman University in Orange, California, and National University in San Diego, California. Dr. Mastery holds a doctorate in science from the Department of Environmental Health at the Harvard School of Public Health. In our conversation, we talk about how environmental scientists understand multiple chemical sensitivity, why so many people with MCS struggle to get a medical diagnosis, and how the illness is likely to continue to affect millions of people in the coming years. I'm really grateful to Dr. Masri for taking time to speak on the podcast and for sharing his wealth of knowledge about MCS. I hope you find the insights he shares helpful and interesting. There's some minor audio issues at certain points throughout the interview. Nothing serious, but I just wanted to draw your attention to that. And I hope you enjoy the interview. Well, Professor Masri, it's really great to meet with you today. And I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I think listeners will really benefit hearing you because of your expertise. And uh, so thanks so much for, for taking time to do this. Absolutely. My pleasure. So maybe before we um, jump into the, um, into the conversation, I'd really like to ask you, what brings you to this research you know, around uh, environmental health and uh, chemical sensitivity and, and tilt? So my background is in environmental exposure assessment. So in my field, we're concerned with you know, all kinds of exposures ranging from foodborne contaminants, uh, pesticides, lead in food, uh, to air pollution, water contamination, et cetera. When you're studying these conventional pollutants like air pollutants and, and, and all the rest, there's a wide body of literature that's focused on, you know, the things that come out of cars, uh, emissions from, you know, consumer products, everything from carpet, indoor air pollution is a, is a big re- research area as well. These are the sort of main things that get studied and they're oftentimes easier to study in the sense that exposures are, are widely documented, uh, readily measured, and health outcomes can be fairly consistent across different groups and different individuals. In the case of air pollution, we tend to see widespread associations with asthma, with chronic pulmonary obstructive disorder, emphysema. There's uh, there's a whole host of consistent health outcomes. Uh, when we talk about lead exposure, there's a really strong relationship between lead exposure and neurodevelopmental outcomes in children, decrement in IQ, things like that. So there's a, uh, a consistent outcome that we can readily observe with a, a lot of the more conventional exposures that we think of. There's a real need to address a population that has described symptoms that are very similar to what we would uh, see in people who have allergies that aren't really well studied, uh, well defined, and 
I gravitated into uh, that area in part. It's not the only area that I study, but um, because there is this extensive uh, need to address and better understand this problem, uh, again, more oftentimes uh, lower level exposures, not as high a concentration in the environment, and uh, oftentimes perplexing mix of outcomes and symptoms not always consistent from one case to the other. Uh, so there's a real need to understand this. Uh, back in, towards the end of my graduate school studies, I linked up with a professor, Dr. Claudia Miller, uh, who does work in Texas uh, at uh, San Antonio. She's a, a physician by training, but also has an industrial hygiene background. And she's worked at the university there for, oh gosh, over three decades. And um, ever since grad school, We've been working on, uh, you know, this area of toxic and induced loss of tolerance and uh, recently published a paper together that's looked at patterns of, of tilt among eight different exposed groups. So that's kind of a rough background of my area and how I ultimately gravitated in part to research chemical intolerance. That's wonderful. And I think a lot of listeners will be familiar with Professor Miller's work and have read some of her work. And it's wonderful to hear that you're working together and collaborating. And so perhaps we could um, dive into this question, really, the question which is central to this discussion is, how do you as a researcher, as a scientist, understand multiple chemical sensitivity and yeah, and, and maybe we could frame it in a way in sort of layperson's terms, right? Because I think a lot of us with MCS struggle to let others know what's happening. How do you understand it? And what, what happens in the body and the brain? Right. So there's a lot to be uh, uncovered still about exactly what's happening, happening physiologically. But um, somebody who's observing a, a person with MCS or a tilt, and, and you'll find there's a, a variety of different sort of synonyms, uh, environmental illness. Uh, it's been called idiopathic environmental illness. We've been kind of shifting towards the use of the word tilt. So I just want to say that MCS tilt for these purposes, you know, we may use them interchangeably here. And I can get into the differences between those two uh, if you'd like. But, you know, what MCS looks like, what chemical intolerance looks like to somebody observing uh, this in a person is very similar to what one might observe as I, I use the word allergy previously. It's not a technical, technically correct description of what's going on in a person who's affected by chemical intolerance, but from a person observing uh, what's going on and hearing the sort of symptoms and description of the health problem, it sounds a lot like allergies. The difference here is that if you go get an, if you go get an allergy test uh, and you're having a physiological allergic response, uh, what they're going to be testing for is a, a spike in what's called IgE in your blood. So if you uh, show this spike in IgE levels in your blood, that's an indication that in fact, you are undergoing some allergic response to some so-called allergen. Now, in the case of chemical intolerance, we don't see these spikes in blood IgE levels. And for that reason, uh, people who are suffering from chemical intolerance essentially are sort of uh, left in the dark. They're defined as not allergic. Uh, they're not suffering from allergies. Doctor can't really help you. And, and on you go out the door, uh, maybe another doctor can help, but allergists, uh, that's not their specialty. So that's the case for people suffering from chemical intolerance. Now, it doesn't mean that nothing is actually going on. It just means that uh, what we know about 
these um, these responses isn't consistent with what we know about allergic responses. So uh, there's that's the sort of distinction. And I was going to kind of save this question for later in our chat, but part of your work, I understand, is creating a set of diagnostic tools with uh, Professor Miller and your colleagues. Do you think now would be a good time to just talk briefly about what those are and, you know, because you pointed to the challenges that the traditional allergy tests don't pick up on MCS, right? They're not effective. So could you tell us a little bit about the diagnostic tools that you've developed? Yeah, so Dr. Miller and her team uh, developed this before I came to, uh, to work with them, but it's a really important tool. So as I mentioned, we don't have a convenient uh, laboratory test that can show that a person is suffering from chemical intolerance, that that can show this sort of um, biomarker or phys physiological response. So what Dr. Miller and her team created was a uh, what's called a quick environmental exposure and sensitivity inventory, which is a, essentially a diagnostic tool. It's a, a survey that one can take to essentially score their, their um, impacts, their, their uh, reactions, health reactions to different, a range of different chemicals and allow for a quantification, a, a way to characterize and quantify and even rank the extent to which their, um, they either are or aren't impacted by environmental chemicals and uh, would be uh, defined as uh, somebody who's actually chemically intolerant. So this is a a diagnostic tool, which we encourage people to take to their physicians um, to better understand their own symptoms and also to allow their physicians to understand um, what's going on. So this is a tool that's now been used in over a dozen countries worldwide. Uh, a number of studies have been published that you have used this diagnostic tool. And uh, it's one of the most important things you can do if you're somebody who is suffering from chemical intolerance is to go on to the tiltresearch.org website, uh, go ahead and take the, the queasy as it's called for short and, um, and take that to your doctor. It's good for your, for your own understanding, but it's also extremely important to take to your physician. That's fantastic. And, you know, there is a lot of denialism among the, you know, the Western trained medical community. And that's something I wanted to talk with you about. But um, given that level of skepticism or denialism, people will say, could say, well, you're just making it up, right? Like if you can't measure the level of uh, reaction in an allergy test, for example, what's to say like an HR department, for example, who one could go to to request accommodation at work could say, well, it's not a trustworthy test. Uh, is this a, like a, a real uh, a diagnostic tool that can really work and how, how well known is it among the medical community? Like if I were to take it to my doctor. It's not extremely well known just as the whole field of chemical intolerance is not extremely well known uh, within the field of, you know, the medical field. Um, in fact, if you open up the environmental health textbook that I use to teach in my classes, uh, you'll see that multiple chemical sensitivity, as it's referred to in the book, amounts to about a paragraph at the end of one chapter. And this is, you know, a several hundred page environmental health textbook. So there's an acknowledgement uh, within environmental health that this is a, a phenomenon that exists. Uh, but 
again, there's not a whole lot of, um, there's not a whole lot of un, uh, physiological literature, toxicological literature uh, that, that has uncovered the, the mechanisms behind this. Uh, it's not very easy to study um, for reasons I, I've mentioned briefly and I can get, get into. Uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And, you know, when we're, you know, talking about your question, point people back to the germ theory. And, uh, you know, previous to being able to, through microscopes, uh, see the sort of invisible world, the world that's invisible to the naked eye, um, and previous to research that is, you know, over and over again, began to show that there are, in fact, these microscopic organisms that lead to pathogenic, uh, you know, communicable diseases. It was also uh, enigmatic. It was, it was a mystery as to why people were getting sick with a variety of diseases that were related to, you know, water contamination, uh, germs, and, you know, viruses and bacteria. So we can't confuse our um, infancy in our understanding of a certain disease system with uh, a rejection of the potential that there is, you know, some sort of explanation as to what's going on. Uh, just because we haven't discovered uh, all the details surrounding something, it, it's, I think, myopic to say that, uh, well, this is just, uh, you know, mental. And, uh, and I actually think it's also important to point out that, um, you know, we try to draw a distinct line between what's uh, sort of psychological and uh, physiological, but there's not really a sharp line to be drawn. We are a biochemical system, our entire body from the, the kinds of neurotransmission and, and thoughts and neurological system in our body to, uh, you know, every other aspect of our body. We are a biochemical system that's, um, that influences, our, you know, chemicals influence our mood, <laughs> you know, trace amounts of hormones dramatically influence the way we feel both mentally, uh, physically. So to draw a real hard line between uh, what's going on uh, mentally and emotionally to other chemical aspects of our body is I think to kind of, you know, forget the fact that we are a chemical reaction. Our entire body is a chemical reaction from how we feel strength wise to how we feel emotionally. And having said that, when, when, when someone with MCS or TILT goes to a doctor and asks for help and they're told that they have a mental illness or an anxiety disorder, um, how do you view that? Because we know that that causes, can cause a lot of distress and alienation and, and upset, right? Long-lasting harm. And, and is that just something that physicians do because they don't understand it enough? As you say, we, they don't have enough insight into the physiological mechanisms that are at play. You know, it's tough to say. I think that we, you know, our human minds try to fit everything into neat categories. Uh, it, it, it's how we process information. And when there's not a, a neat category, you know, medical category, that we've been taught surrounding chemical intolerance. Um, well, the only other category that maybe a doctor is aware of is a psychological disorder. And, and therefore maybe uh, that's why physicians often file them into that cabinet. Um, it's also potential that a lot of the physicians who encounter people with chemical intolerance are encountering such individuals at a, a late stage after, you know, maybe, uh, being turned down by physician after physician, maybe suffering for years on end. And I also, uh, I can't, I don't think we can 
disconnect the extent to which such a, a grave and debilitating and frustrating experience emotionally and physically can actually wear one's psyche down and potentially exacerbate the problem because uh, there's a definite relationship between our psychological well-being and our physical health. And we know this from uh, a range of studies, even looking at how people rehabilitate after surgery who are who have an open window at their in their doctor, their medical room versus uh, staring at a, a brick building across the way. I mean, psychology does play a role in other aspects of physical health, well-being, healing. So it's possible that uh, there is a, an interaction there between one's psychological health and, um, and more, you know, what we think of as physical uh, chemical intolerance sort of related aspect. And uh, doctors may see some of the clear uh, psychological signs and then conflate that or confuse that with uh, what may have ultimately gotten them to that place emotionally, physically, uh, and psychologically. So that may also play a, a role in, in why doctors are often sort of uh, misdiagnosis, uh, diagnosing chemical intolerance. I understand. And so maybe we could take a step back. And uh, you mentioned that you personally, as a researcher, uh, prefer the term tilt, if I'm not mistaken. And maybe we could just unpack that a little bit. Are MCS and tilt the same illness? And in your 2021 paper with uh, Professor Miller and your colleagues, you, you write about a two-stage process, right? The initiation and the trigger. Could you please um, unpack that a little bit for us in the sense of, you know, are MCS and tilt, again, the same illness? Is it the case where someone has MCS for an undefined period of time and, and it's a progressive illness with a question mark and then it gets to a point where what was once a sensitivity becomes an intolerance. How, how does, how do you view all that? Yeah, it's a really great question. And, um, you know, the, the, the main reason behind the shift towards tilt, well, to answer your question there, yeah, they are basically, uh, they're the same thing, multiple chemical sensitivity, idiopathic environmental illness, environmental illness, um, chemical intolerance tilt. These are all describing the same um, issue, the same public health uh, issue going on within the population uh, worldwide. The, the problem is that uh, multiple chemical sensitivity, for instance, MCS, is um, it's describing, it's describing uh, a sensitivity. And, and it, by the way, these terms have, these earlier terms, uh, ex the exception of chemical tolerance and tilt, which is newer, these older terms have really come to have a real stigma associated with them uh, in the medical community. They've often been, as you noted, associated or, or sort of um, discussed in the context of psychological health, uh, dismissed as psychological disorders. So with uh, Dr. Miller, uh, her work has attempted to get away from these stigmatized uh, terms that are embedded in an observation of illness without any indication of what's going on. So with her research uh, and her observations of a chemical um, induction of illness, she's gravitated toward the use, and this is over, uh, over 20 years ago now, the use of the term toxicant induced loss of tolerance. This really more accurately describes what's going on, namely a, uh, an induction of, a, of an illness that is brought about through chemical exposures in the environment. Uh, and we can talk about what those are if you'd like, but that's just a real important, important point of clarification. Um, it's a, it's, it's a, 
it's uh there's a lot of terms out there floating around to describe a certain ailment but um we've sort of gravitated towards one that is yeah. more of a mechanistic description right and i hear you know there is a lot of discussion among the community of folks with chemical sensitivity until about what's a what people feel is the best descriptor right and um you know i've read and it's my personal view that sensitivity doesn't really convey the gravity or the severity of the illness to people and some people can just potentially accuse one of being, well, you're being too sensitive or it's just a mild inconvenience. And the term intolerance um, really hits the nail on the head, uh, you know, describes certainly my experience and I believe a lot of others. It's not just a sensitivity, it is a profound intolerance. I think so. And, and you point out a, a great um, point, which is uh, sensitivity almost sounds like, uh, you know, almost blamey and, uh, you know, um, oh, well, you're just sensitive, as you noted. And, and we need to, I think, get a, away from those terms that fail to recognize that there is, a, you know, a, an adverse exposure that that is um, breaking down one's ability to tolerate uh, that exposure. Before we come to some of the common triggers, perhaps you could you please talk a little bit about the range of symptoms that people with MCS or tilt experience, please? Yeah, sure. And, and um, you know, before I talk about triggers, I'll just mention a, a thing or two about initiators. So when we talk about tilt and, and our understanding of chemical intolerance over the last several decades, what we tend to see is a two-stage mechanism, and this is described in our papers and other papers that Dr. Miller has published. Basically, you've got a, an initiation of chemical intolerance, and this is the, the initial chemical exposure. This can be a major initiation event, such as uh, you know, the remodeling of your building, which brought in new carpet and outgassed uh, you know, variety of chemicals that reach really high concentrations for, you know, extended number of days. And, and then ultimately, um, you know, that was your initiation um, or your breakdown of tolerance to um, a variety of chemical triggers, which we'll talk about in a second, but it can also be low level chronic exposures over time. Uh, so these are the different uh, ways that initiation can come to be. But what the, once a person is initiated, um, again, thinking about it as uh, the, their tolerance being broke down for, you know, tolerating everyday chemicals, foods, drugs. Uh, once that's taken place, structurally diverse triggers can actually elicit symptoms. And um, it might not be the same chemical that initiated your chemical intolerance in the first place. Maybe it was a pesticide exposure, but because of that initial uh, exposure event, you now are finding yourself and unable to tolerate uh, certain foods that you used to eat, certain medications that you used to take. Uh, maybe you can't even tolerate your own home in the most severe cases. Most people don't realize it, but in your home, uh, it's a real cocktail of different chemicals, uh, particularly if you've got carpet and rugs and new furniture. Uh, if it's a newer house, you've got formaldehyde uh, outgassing from the walls, from the, the compressed wood that's used to construct the home. So the, uh, the chemicals available to trigger this kind of response are really countless in the indoor environment, uh, which can make it really difficult for people suffering from MCS. Uh, now, that's the two-stage mechanism. So you've got your initiation and your triggers. 
you mentioned symptoms. They're quite numerous and can include anything from rashes, mood changes, difficulty with memory and concentration, also described often as brain fog, as well as respiratory symptoms. Right. There are a long list. And that's, I understand, part of the challenge that physicians have, right, in, in being conclusive in a diagnosis. Would you corroborate that? Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, when you're talking about acute symptoms, uh, things like, you know, rash, for instance, uh, a skin irritation, all the way to something like mood changes or difficulty with memory. Uh, this is a quite a, a range of, of impacts, which uh, lead most physicians to, you know, more question marks really than answers. Uh, so it's, I think, understandable as to why, uh, you know, physicians don't have a clear way, uh, you know, clear path to handling, uh, you know, these sorts of complaints. But it's, uh, it's, again, important to, you know, not discard these complaints. And that's just uh, a real, a real important message that we're trying to communicate to physicians. Um, but it's not always easy to, to do so. And there's, of course, physicians uh, all around the world, uh, hospitals all around the world. And the task at hand really is to is to convey this information to both patient and physician. Uh, many physicians, when you're talking about medical school, I mean, and I've had many uh, friends who are medical students, the curriculum is absolutely jam-packed. There's very little room for really anything else. Uh, there's only a, a, a modest, minimal, I should say, amount of even nutritional education that goes on in the medical schools and a very minimal amount of environmental health uh, you know, education. And you know, somebody like me, my whole curriculum is packed full of chemical exposure, environmental health courses, but that's all condensed oftentimes into a single course when you're um, becoming a medical student. It's somewhat akin to the field of chemistry where um, most graduates of chemistry departments um, may never get even a single course in how to engineer chemicals that are not harmful to the environment and to public health. Um, because again, the curriculums are so jam-packed. Uh, so there's a real need for interdisciplinary, um, you know, teaching across uh, these different schools of these different departments, because they all affect public health, but they're oftentimes disconnected. And you write about in your work and in your 2021 paper in particular, that there are certain groups who have been adversely affected by and developed MCS and TILT. For example, you, you know people who survived the attacks on the World Trade Center in 2011, people who've had um, implants, exposure to mold, exposure to pesticides, uh, exposure to aircraft oil, um, among others. And without going into detail about these specific case studies, but for the general public, what are some of the major triggers that would create, lead one to develop this illness? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, yeah, I won't go into those eight cases in detail, except to note that, um, you know, it's really important and useful to investigate and, and compare different groups who are affected by um, and, and, and developing chemical intolerance following the same uh, initiation, initiating exposure. So you know, if you've got a, a room full of people, as was the case in the EPA re remodeling uh, case that we noted from the 1980s, 
um, you know, a whole room full of people that simultaneously were exposed to something and simultaneously developed a, um, a reaction, that's pretty strong evidence that, that there's something going on that is not just, uh, you know, random uh, psychosomatic, uh, you know, d disorder. So what we did is looked at that across eight different populations um, uh, who, had, who had had similar stories of chemical intolerance following um, shared exposures and, uh, and compare them. And we did tease out uh, a number of similarities related to what initiates tilt, um, pesticides being a main culprit, um, different um, VOCs, volatile organic compounds. But in terms of your question about what triggers, you know, so after initiation has taken place, what triggers, uh, you know, symptoms, we often see this, uh, this can be fragrances. So this could be things ranging from just perfumes to odors that one might encounter after, you know, cleaning their house. So chemical solvents, um, you know, the things that you clean your floor with traffic exhaust, diesel emissions, uh, oftentimes noted foods similarly. So sometimes somebody's favorite food is no longer, uh, it couldn't be further from a favorite anymore. It actually becomes something they can't tolerate, um, causes the symptoms to be, uh, elicited types of symptoms we talked about before alcohol and caffeine often come up specifically red wines are often mentioned as uh, the types of foods that are no longer tolerated once somebody has uh, become uh, initiated and uh, reports. And I get emails from time to time in my inbox, uh, reports by people who are, you know, most severely chemically intolerant often um, are describing their homes really as no longer even being uh, tolerable, uh, likely for the reasons that we just you know, talked about earlier, all the different chemicals that are in the homes. And it's not always ex uh, easy for that reason to identify the specific triggers that are causing um, somebody to, to become symptomatic. You know, walking in your home, you're immediately hit with a wall of, of dozens of different chemical exposures. So um, there's still some, you know, a lot that remains to be understood about what specifically causes people's symptoms. One thing that comes to mind in, our, in listening to you, uh, Professor Mastery, is well, why do some people develop MCS or TILT and others do not? So you noted people, for example, who are in a case where there's severe um, exposure to chemical, which creates the onset of the illness. Um, but let's say um, a library, which I frequent, is remodeled. And why would, for example, 10 people develop MCS and 10 wouldn't? Is it because of genetics? Are some people predisposed to developing it? I've heard it described as, as a not a malfunction, but a, a problem, for lack of a better word, with, with one's genetic makeup. Yeah, so we know very well in, um, you know, toxicology knows this extremely well, uh, you know, the, the field that deals with um, toxicological impacts and the actual biological um, mechanisms that ensue during, you know, the body's uh, breakdown of chemicals or what's called biotransformation reactions that take place in the body. These are the ways in which the human body actually converts harmful chemicals into more benign chemicals that can then be processed and excreted. Uh, so these bio, these biotransformation pathways in the body, um, they vary from person to person. There's some very uh, common ones that, you know, for instance, get followed with 
when you drink caffeine, uh, certain enzymatic pathways that lead to the breakdown of caffeine. But there's about 13 or so different pathways that it can actually go down when you're breaking down caffeine. Um, so we know very well that uh, the human population, there's a lot of genetic diversity and there's a lot of different uh, susceptibilities to different compounds, different exposures, um, even uh, communicable diseases. You know, there's somebody may fare better than another person, both get impacted by the same uh, virus. Now, those are different reasons, but in the case of chemical intolerance, it's these enzymatic pathways that are really important to rendering a person either resistant to or very susceptible to a given chemical insult. So um, that's that's uh, really the, the the story that explains um, diversity when it comes to chemical chemical exposures. Diversity in terms of how one responds. There's a common phrase: it's the dose that makes the poison. And that's true, but a more accurate term that we've come to understand over the decades of environmental research is it's the dose plus the host that makes the poison. Not only is it important as to the concentration of exposure, but it's also important as to your biological makeup, the types of uh, enzymatic pathways that can, can uh, be followed and, and the types of enzymes you have in your body that can break down certain chemicals. And, um, you know, when we talk about occupational exposures, there's actually something called the healthy worker effect. So you, if you go to study a group of people working in a certain industrial facility, um, you are likely to be dealing with a rather tolerant bunch of people because the people who are not able to handle those kinds of exposures, uh, they got sick after a week or two or a year and they quit their jobs. So uh, we know very clearly that there's a whole range of different uh, resistances to different chemicals that um, are out there in the population. And, and, uh, and that's the same thing for chemical intolerance. So it's, it's going to vary from person to person due to enzymes and, and other genetic factors. And when people just shift the gears a little bit, when people with MCS or TILT, you know, try to explain their illness to whether it's loved ones or friends, colleagues, and even doctors, do you have any tips for in terms of what folks can say, you know, because we want to believe, we don't want to be met with denialism or skepticism or suspicion or gaslit, right? What, what can we say when, when we're met with this, this doubt? You know, I'm a big proponent of references and citations, and I think that's what the world comes, has, you know, values uh, for good reason. So whether you're talking about a, a news article, often, saying that you read it from the New York Times is more uh, persuasive than saying you read it on somebody's blog post. So uh, the same is true if we're trying to convey that, that there's a real problem that's credible. I think it's important to bring your physician some uh, peer-reviewed papers. This is the highest bar of credibility in the scientific field is a, a peer-reviewed paper um, that describes the situation. Um, you know, our team uh, that I work with, with Dr. Claudia Miller, uh, we're a strong team that has brought in uh, academics from MIT to, to uh, you know, Harvard, UCI, uh, Texas. And those, those uh, are all points of, I think, credibility that will help to uh, help a patient to convey to a physician that look, these are papers that are coming out of top universities that are showing uh, this, this 
real problem that's out there in the field. I'd like it if you could review this to better understand what, uh, what fits my description of, of health outcomes. So I really encourage uh, people to print out a couple of our papers, uh, take the queasy, and then bring this uh, stuff to your doctor. Don't bring too much. If you bring a giant stack of papers, it's going to likely go unread. But if you just select a couple key papers, I would encourage the uh, someone to pick up our our recent paper, which is available at the tiltresearch.org website. It's also on, on my website, shahirmossary.com. Uh, you'll be able to print that out and bring it to your to your physician. And, and that, I think, is going to be a really important way to... Um, to convey the, the science behind what's going on. And that's very helpful. And we will certainly provide links for listeners on, um, on our platforms. It's not possible to have a, a paper that is the, you know, the gold standard and by no means is our paper, the end all story of, uh, and it's really about the preponderance of, of scientific evidence. And that's going to grow over time. Um, you know, we still, uh, there's a few papers that can be out there cited about, you know, climate change not <laughs> occurring and, and that those papers aren't really important because we've got thousands of other papers that say the contrary. Now, in the case of chemical intolerance, we're unfortunately not, uh, you know, graced with this wide giant abundance of papers on chemical intolerance, but we do have a, see a growing trend in the literature and that's important. Uh, but the, the point of bringing a paper or two to your doctor is not to say that um, this is, uh, you know, that that no other paper out there is able to refute, you know, what we're finding. It's just to provide a scientific basis to help your physician understand what's going on. Um, it's uh, not easy necessarily for doctors to keep on top of every single, uh, you know, disease and how it's transforming in a scientific literature. So what you're doing is you're just helping your doctor to better understand your problem. And, uh, you know, it's not easy to change an entire medical community overnight. It's, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, but it, it, it is, uh, it is an important starting point. And, you know, mm -hmm. related to the, the strong countervailing winds that do exist that are going to make it difficult to shift the medical paradigm over time. Uh, it's worth noting that, you know, the funding plays a major role in terms of, you know, what is studied uh, and there's not a whole lot of funding to investigate this line of work. Uh, when you think about the, the uh, solution to this problem, you know, maybe there's some treatment that down the road will be discovered, but for the most part, it's pretty much reducing chemical exposures. Um, what does that mean? It means you're probably not going to get a lot of large funders. So, um, you know, we see this kind of this challenge related to funding play out all across the, the world, at different universities, and it's not easy to get funded for research that ultimately is going to bode poorly for the funder. Understood. And, um, but it's encouraging to hear you say, I think I, I heard you say that, that the research will catch up, but over time, there will be more. And do you have a sense of roughly how many people percentage of the population is affected by MCS and tilt? And are you seeing a growing number of people? And, you know, how do you see the future unfolding? Because from what I, what I gather, a lot of your research focuses on climate change. And, um, do you see any parallels there as the world gets hotter um, or in parallel becomes more polluted? Are, are we going to see uh, a ramping up of this illness? And, and in tandem, is your hope that more research will be done? So it's a great question on the percentage 
question. Um, double digit percentages are uh, are commonly ref referenced in terms of the percent, but it's difficult to put a, a number on it just because the severity of chemical intolerance can differ so dramatically. And, um, you know, one study might re uh, refer to the most severe cases, whereas another one is just referring to different uh, ailments that might come from fragrances, maybe unpleasant uh, short-term reactions. So we see percentages as you know high as 30 or more percent, um, but certainly that's a high number if we're thinking about severe cases. But uh, it's very prevalent, I guess would just be the short answer from what we can gather from the literature. In terms of the problem growing over time, I think that's a, a real big concern. Uh, we saw this in the 1970s during the oil shock uh, when buildings got tighter to reduce the energy needed to, you know, heat and cool buildings, this led to an increase in indoor air pollution, uh, because tighter buildings that aren't as leaky to outdoor air also mean there's an a, a ability for chemicals to, to sort of accumulate inside. And that was a, a negative for indoor air quality. We may see that kind of, um, continue as, you know, energy conservation becomes more important. But, um, the other thing to note is that, the uh, climate change, uh, the, the, the impacts from climate change are also worth noting, and we're hoping to write a paper soon to, to showcase some examples, but um, I there was a paper I wrote, an uh, article that was published in The Hill in 2016, which talked about the hurricanes that were slamming the Gulf Coast, and what often happens afterwards is you get massive flooding events, you get uh, a lot of resurgence of mosquitoes and breeding as you get a lot of stagnant pools. And what this uh, ultimately leads to is regular aerosol, I'm sorry, aerial spraying uh, using NALED pesticide across the Gulf Coast. Um, so a situation like this, if we're going to see increased hurricane severity across uh, different regions of the world, it's expected that we may see an increase in pesticide-related um, cases of chemical intolerance. So that was just one example, but, um, you know, there's other examples like that. And, and I think climate change is going to just pose a, a challenge. Another one might be wildfire related chemical intolerance. We don't actually know a whole lot about chemical intolerance that's initiated by wildfire smoke, uh, but that's just another plausible uh, reason why chemical intolerance may be a growing issue moving forward. Uh, hopefully with this literature growing and a better understanding of this issue, we can see policy and other important um, interventions to reduce chemical exposures in the sort of synthetic world to engineer products that are uh, less prone to outgassing. We've seen paints now that are low VOC paints, and that's a good step in the right direction. And hopefully we'll see more of that over time. Well, that's really um, an optimistic uh, note. And perhaps lastly, uh, what's on your radar in terms of MCS until you mentioned some, you know, issues related to the heating of the planet, et cetera. Um, but are there any other questions that you're interested in that you might share with us just to give us a little window into what, what's going to motivate you going forward? Yeah, so my interest in both the field of air pollution and also MCS are, are uh, kind of converging under this umbrella of wildfire impacts and climate change. So that really actually does encapsulate some of what I'm interested in examining moving forward. We're, we've had a couple papers published now uh, looking at, um, well, one of them was published and the other one is, is being processed at the impacts of wildfires around this across the state of California. So I am interested in ultimately 
taking that into the domain of chemical intolerance. We haven't done that yet, but it's something I'm interested in. And uh, climate impacts broadly is something that I'd like to investigate as it relates to chemical intolerance. I've heard anecdotally from folks with MCS that their illness was triggered by exposure to wildfire smoke. So mm. that's probably something you're certainly familiar with, I'm sure. Um, perhaps lastly, just in, you know, uh, we tend to talk uh, or from a North American perspective, but when, when you look out at, at the world, um, are you seeing sort of similar rates? Uh, are you aware of similar rates? I read that, for example, in Japan over, I think it was in your paper, there's been a, a significant increase over 10 years. Um, you know, what do you see in terms of a global picture, in terms of prevalence of the illness? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And the answer is we're, you know, we're always trying to learn more. Um, there's been, there's a, there's a trend or a, a hypothesis, I should say, that the developed countries are afflicted by this more than the underdeveloped countries due to a lot of the exposures that we encounter in our very developed society. Um, lots of, you know, products and, and uh, commodities that are filling up our households that emit chemicals. But there is, it remains to be seen um, how this looks in some of the more underdeveloped countries. A lot of the research, as you can imagine, comes out of the developed world. So we're launching a, a survey that's looking at uh, several thousand uh, people. Um, we haven't done it yet, but it's probably going to take the uh, BS6 nation study that's going to survey at least a thousand people from each country that's going to include both uh, underdeveloped and developed nations, including, I think we're uh, including India as one of the countries. So we're going to be very curious to see what the prevalence of chemical intolerance looks like uh, across these different studies. Uh, but we don't totally have the answer at this moment. You know, it's just been really fascinating listening to you and uh, speaking with you, learning more about your work. And I, and I think people who listen will really uh, benefit from hearing from all the knowledge you've shared. You know, just on a personal note, it's quite moving to hear you speak and to, to hear your commitment and your passion and your, your expertise. So uh, I really want to thank you for the work you do. So uh, Professor Mastery, once again, thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, thank you too. Um, a, a big part of what we talked about on this podcast was the need for outreach and communication and ultimately shifting of the, the current paradigm. So you're playing a big role in that yourself with this podcast. And, uh, and I know you're a professor doing great work as well. So thank you very much. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Chemical Sensitivity Podcast. Thank you to Dr. Shahir Masri for joining me. The Chemical Sensitivity Podcast is produced by me, Aaron Goodman, and Danny Penaloza and Emma Bolzner. To learn more about the podcast and to hear more episodes, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and share the podcast with others. Follow us on social media. Just search for the Chemical Sensitivity Podcast or Podcasting MCS. Email me at info at chemicalsensitivitypodcast.org. I'll definitely respond. Thanks so much for listening.